0: If you're anything like me, you avoid seeing a doctor, if at all possible. But when you do reluctantly drag yourself into the consulting room, you want answers now. Or maybe you've done your research online and you just need the doctor to confirm the diagnosis and hand over the pills. Our guest today is family GP and health blogger Priya Alexander, and she doesn't necessarily think those expectations are realistic.
1: This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston.
0: Hey, welcome back to another week of Signs of the Times Radio. And with us on the line from Melbourne is local GP, Dr Priya Alexander. How are you, Priya?
2: I'm really good, thank you.
0: That's excellent. I understand you. You're pretty busy there as a GP in a number of different locations. Is is that right?
2: So I actually work at one location in Richmond, but mm. I also teach training GPs. So I work in Hawthorne training GPs and teaching them about you know the kind of guidelines and, and what's happening in Edison.
0: Wow. Okay. And you're also a, a blogger. You have a a blog called the the, the Wholesome Doctor. I mean, that's. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, yeah. very uh, well, in, in, in enthusiastic kind of pra- of praise of yourself. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, you yeah, know, it's a bit of an outlet. So I've always enjoyed kind of public speaking, and um, and I quite enjoy, you know, writing on medical topics for people who aren't medical. So, yeah, it's a bit of fun. I get to do some stuff in the media like this and, and go on TV sometimes and, most importantly, get people kind of passionate and talking about their own health. So, mm-hmm. yeah, quite enjoy it.
0: Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. I mean, you, your blog is uh, is really interesting in terms of the, uh, I guess, the diversity of the topics that you cover. I mean... Th- you know, the sorts of things you would expect there, you know, let's talk about, you know, health issues and things like that. But you've also got re- recipes and you've even got like commentary on the way that, that doctors are trained and the sort of conditions that they work under. I mean, that's that's a, an issue right now. I think in New Zealand, the junior doctors are, are currently on a, on a strike there.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. That's, kind of thing probably needs to happen in Australia at some point but yes I do do a a range of topics I live with you know my husband is a training plastic surgeon who's about to finish so you know we're living through a lot of the stuff that the media are talking about so yeah I wrote that piece I was quite passionate about it and he actually helped me with it but yeah I do recipes and I'm quite passionate Kent about people getting You know, the five serves of veggies a day, the two serves of fruit, you know, Mm. ideally 30 minutes of exercise a day, just the little stuff that can make a really huge difference to your health.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you you say um, on your blog there that you are passionate about all things uh, preventive health. Mm -hmm. And and, and I guess eating well is a part of that. Where else does, does preventive take us?
2: So, you know, it's it's about the kind of 30 minutes of exercise, ideally most days a week, which is really good for cancer prevention, even depression prevention and for heart health. But there's even things like vaccinations, which I talk a lot about. And that's, you know, very big in the preventative health space, which is, you know, preventing illnesses like measles, um, mm-hmm. keeping, you know, illnesses like smallpox eradicated, ideally. So yeah, preventative health is a huge, huge area of medicine. It goes into you know, all sorts of different areas. But, yeah, it gives me a lot to talk about, I have to say.
0: Mm, yeah, but, but relatively underfunded, I understand, it when it comes to, you know, public health initiatives, preventative health sort of thing. Yeah. In, in terms of the budgets that are allocated to it, it's apparently quite small. Is that your understanding?
2: It is, yeah, and and certainly that's been discussed at the moment in in the budget that was just released by the current government. You know that they're, they're trying to put more initiatives in place, like promoting heart health and, and preventative health in the heart arena, because that's you know a huge killer in Australia of oh, both yeah. men and women.
1: Yeah,
2: and so yeah, you're right. It is probably underfunded at the moment, and there need to be more kind of clever initiatives. You know, I guess the thing is, and I don't want to i don't want to be a whinger, but there's a lot to do in a, a GP consult. Mm. And so, you know, whilst I'm treating someone's, you know, cold or cough or, you know, mental health issues, to try and think about heart health um, and all the other stuff is really, really tricky. So I think we need to kind of, you know, find ways to, to give the GP time and put more funding in so that other people can kind of help in the preventative health space.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. And I guess as a GP, you're there at the front line of Absolutely. um you know, of our health system's medical response. What sort of range or or mix of issues and and diseases do people bring to you? Like are there sort of trends that you see and trends that are developing over time perhaps?
2: Look, I think, you know, I I guess my story to explain this is I actually did some specialty training, some physician's training, once I left my hospital year. So I thought Mm. I was going to be a geriatrician or a rheumatologist. I actually, you know, I say saw the light. I kind of, I, I didn't want to be kind of put into a box. I wanted to see a little bit of everything. I didn't want to never see children again. And so I went into general practice. And I have to say, the most rewarding part of it is exactly what you said, which is being on the front line, but the variety. Like, I will see Kent in a single day. On Monday, I was in the clinic. You know, I'll see anxious patients, depressed patients. I have my patient who's on fertility treatment who's just received a positive pregnancy test.
1: Mm. I've
2: got a woman who is pregnant who's got, you know, a likely pneumonia. What else did I see? Children with behavioural issues, you know, children who are bedding the bed, the common coughs and colds and flu vaccines, everything. It's just, you know, and probably treating, like what you're asking is Mm. a lot of mental health more mental health.
0: Really? Okay. But is is yes. that is that related to lifestyle? Where's that coming from? That that trend, do you think?
2: I think probably people are more willing to talk about it, and, okay. and I think you know on on the website where I work, I have put that I'm very interested in mental health because I am and I'm passionate about it, mm. and so I will get people who you know see that, and and you know people who you. You know, people kind of look at them and go, oh, there would be nothing wrong there. And these people are battling, you know, significant anxiety, not sleeping mm, at night. Mm. So I think people are more comfortable. And I really do think that the, the campaigns on mental health, you know, Movember, lots of campaigns that exist to kind of get people to talk are working, I think. Okay. I really do. Okay. Yeah.
0: So so I guess that what you're saying is that this issue has perhaps... You know, been there for a long time, mm. but because of increasing awareness, it's people are actually now coming out of the woodwork and are more willing to talk about it than perhaps they were before.
2: I think so, and I think that's wonderful because I think, you know, the more people that talk about it and, and talk about it outside of the consulting room and share their story, mm. the more we're going to break down the stigma.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I noticed another thing Priya, that in, in your blog and you know, when, whenever you write and even as you've been talking to us, you're, you're quite happy to you know, mention your family, mention your kids, mention your, you know, your husband and this sort of thing. I guess for, for some people they would be very clear about you know, maintaining their professional boundaries. This is my professional life, this is my personal life, but you seem to see value in being a, a little bit vulnerable, a, a little bit open. Where, how do you decide you know, how to do that and, and what's appropriate? So
2: that's been a you know something that i still talk about and think about a lot i talk about it with my husband a lot i do believe though that when i sit in the consulting room and say to someone you know maybe your veggie intake's not not what it should be is there any way we can get veggies into your diet or you know you're, you're not doing enough exercise at the moment is there any way that we can kind of you know get you moving a bit more mm. i think it adds more weight if i'm actually doing the stuff that i'm preaching i think it's really hard listen to a GP who themselves is not practicing what they preach you know not living their life somewhat by the guidelines you know I'm not perfect Kent Mm. definitely not but I do share what my family and I are doing because I think it gives me some validity it kind of says to people well you know what she's not just starting out these kind of numbers and guidelines, she's giving it a crack herself. I'm not perfect; I don't always get it right, but I try.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I guess on the other side of that, that if you are struggling with something, or you know, you know, you should be doing something, but it hasn't quite worked out, you can be a little vulnerable about that too, and say, look, you know, I, str- I struggle with this too. You know, we all do. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. And I think the the commonest thing is. You know, there are so many guidelines for parents now. I don't know if you're a parent, but, mm. you know, the World Health Organization just come out, came out and said, you know, about screen time for children and no more than an hour a day. Yeah. And I shared that on the on my social media and I said, look, it's hard. We don't get it right every single day. But, you know, these are the guidelines. I don't get it right 100% of the time, but we try.
0: Yeah. But I, it's saying to mm.
2: people, you know, you don't have to, to tick the box every single time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I saw some mentions of that report. It said things like, you know, kids... Uh, at around sort of the two or three years old age, should be having three hours of vigorous exercise every day. Yes. And I, I was thinking, wow, that's a. Our lifestyles have become really quite sedentary. The, the fact that we can look at that statistic and go, goodness me, where would I find the time to, you know, let my kid run around vigorously for how long I think every day? Do
2: parents feel pressured by it? Because you see that and you go, holy moly what am I meant to be doing with my child but mm. really we're talking about you know you know getting your kids dancing and putting some music on and taking them to the park and you know just not flicking on a screen all the time you might need to sometimes I'm a parent like sometimes I have to have 20 minutes of sanity <laughs> but I kind of you know I have the ways that I work it in I have limited screen time it's rare there's no iPad use in the house you know I just try and make some rules to make it
0: easier for myself. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, we, we used to call the, the television the third parent when, when our kids were little. <laughs> it. <laughs> it's just sometimes, I just turn on the third parent, I can't deal with them anymore. <laughs> every
2: parent needs a bit of sanity, every parent. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. Now, you uh, you wrote an, an article on your blog which we uh, which we adapted for our magazine and it's it's out in this month's, the, the May edition of Signs of the Times magazine and you spend a fair bit of time in that article basically explaining hey doctors are human because it seems that sometimes you know people have unrealistic expectations of, of what it means to be a doctor and the, the medical facts you should always have at the tip of your tongue and, and that sort of thing how, how has that changed o- over the years and and what, what are you doing to sort of I guess you know teach your patients hey you know I yes I have some expertise but doctors are human too let's work through this together
2: Well, I think it's a bit up to the doctor because, you know, you have your regular patients who see you and my patients definitely know that I'm honest when I don't have an answer. Mm. And so I certainly don't portray to them that I am a magician, that I can fix everything, that I can tell them what their gut ache or headache is. Mm -hmm. And I think being honest with patients and saying, look, and I literally literally did this the other day in the clinic to a patient with a headache, I said, look, I don't think it's anything nasty. Mm -hmm. you know I've checked your blood pressure I've looked in your eyes I've you know done all the examination I don't think it's nasty I can't tell you exactly what it is but let's try this this and this Mm -hmm. and get back together in two weeks and my patients are quite content with that because they know that I've excluded the nasty Mm -hmm. so that they're quite comfortable but I think it's it's a big big part of it lies on the doctor Kent, which is you've got to be honest with your patients. We don't have all the answers. I can't remember every single drug dose. That's just impossible. Mm. So I do end up looking at guidelines and I tell my patients, I'm just going to check the guidelines and I show it to them as well. I involve the patient in it, which makes it a bit easier because I can see what I'm doing. We're not actually Googling is, is the main thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about that. But but, <laughs> but before we go there, I guess there is also some patient ignorance just when it comes to what is involved with medical procedures and medical tests. I mean, I, I think, for example, if if I give a blood test or, or a urine test, you know, to, to my um, – or to the pathology, you know, on, on the, uh, at the request of my, my GP – I will sort of then expect that when the result comes back, like it'll say what's wrong, you know? And and when two mm. weeks later they say, well, I need to send you for another blood test, you're like, well, didn't you just do one? Like how, how can mm. you not know the answer to that question? And, um, and it seems like when a urine test or a blood test is done, they're not actually testing for everything possible in the right. universe. They're only testing for one specific question that the GP has asked them to test. I mean, y- you know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know... You're you're absolutely right. And I guess that's good medicine. So, you know, if your GP does send you for just a specific set of tests as opposed to absolutely everything, Mm. then they're they're practicing good medicine. Because what we know is if we do do every single test from the beginning, which is impossible, there's millions of tests,
1: but Mm.
2: if we did, we end up finding what we call incidentalomas which are these things in medicine that, you know, you find one value, two out of the normal range, mm. which you're forced to act upon as the doctor because you found it. And it actually would have caused the patient no harm and they end up going down this path of investigation for no reason. So we do try to do targeted testing. But, yeah, I can imagine it's frustrating for the patient. I hadn't thought of that where they go, but I thought you've already done that. Yep. So, yeah, we try to do targeted testing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, look, Obviously, you know, human beings, you know, while, you know, we all have, you know, two arms, two legs and a head, you know, sort of thing, it seems that different different diseases or, or different conditions actually present differently with, with different people. Do you, do you find mm-hmm. that, that there's this wide sort of, you know, disparity in, in how, you know, when you're trying to diagnose someone, it might look quite different in one person to another? Is that a challenge?
2: Absolutely. It's a big challenge. And I think the the biggest challenge is everyone you know, some people in particular have a really kind of big, well, the way they perceive their illness, I guess. Mm. Some people will perceive irritable bowel syndrome as anxiety. Mm. Some people will perceive it as something being really wrong in their tummy and they'll describe the worst pain they've ever had.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. You know, some people will just describe some mild symptoms and you go, that sounds like IBS, but the other two don't.
1: Mm.
2: It's all IBS, but it's just got a different face each time. And so, you know, I think a lot of people... Possibly think we pattern match as, mm-hmm. as GPs and as doctors, and it's that's impossible because the pattern changes a little bit every time. So we really take clues. That mm, I, fi- mm. I I think half the time I'm a detective, kind yep. of taking clues from what the patient tells me, what I find on examination, and, and going, yeah, this this kind of sounds like IBS again. Mm. But yeah, different story every time, Kent.
0: Mm, wow. Okay. Now look. This is probably my my jealousy talking because you know I was more of a, an English history guy you know at, at high school and you know studied in mm-hmm. the, in the humanities and but then you have your sort of maths and science nerds and <laughs> and, and it seems that the that well is it correct to believe that the people who were good at science in school and uh, are often the ones who end up studying medicine you know because obviously it's similar sort of content and and I guess what worries me is at the end of that process the um the maths and science nerds are perhaps not the people with the best person's, you know, people skills and the best bedside <laughs> manner. Is is that an issue in medicine? And and is it something that's being addressed?
2: So I was like, you Kent. So I did do biology and physics and maths, but I did history, and English. I loved the mm. humanities, mm. and I think you know, I think there is a lot of work being done both. You know, trying to choose the right people to enter medicine, but also choosing the right people to enter general practice, which mm. we by far and away take the most training doctors. There's a lot of work being done to try and pick people who have the people skills, communication skills, who have empathy, which is mm. something that's very hard to teach.
1: Yeah.
2: We're trying to choose those people because they're a good fit for medicine. But, you know, it, it has to be slightly Marks driven, that's the reality. Like you've got to have uh, some sort of TR cutoff or whatever it's called now. Mm. So, yeah, I think I agree with you that having just simply the brightest people in science and maths don't make the best doctors, but there's certainly work being done in that
0: space. Mm-hmm. But they make good surgeons, don't they? Because the, patient, oh, the, 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 <laughs> the patient's it. unconscious, so it doesn't matter what the bedside medicine is. Like.
2: <laughs> they do do a fair bit of talking, actually. I've seen them, and I I I'm know they do. You're half right. the time they're talking. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and and I guess, you know, related to that is is the fairly, I guess, politically sensitive issue, and you, you've you probably come across this, you know, you, you know yourself, that we we do have a lot of overseas doctors now uh, you know because we don't have enough in Australia and and I wonder sometimes that the the cultural uh, disconnect possibly with you know a, a lot of um, patients going to a doctor and who comes from a very different cultural background and and perhaps a doctor is a very you know empathy you know ha- has a lot of empathy but because of that cultural difference they're, they're not feeling it I mean I guess you're uh, I guess having having a South Asian background, but being very culturally Australian, would sort of mm. be at the nexus of of that debate and and that discussion. What, what's your view?
2: I think you know I do train GPs. We tend to do the the, the Australian kind of trained doctors, mm. but you know we. At the moment where I work, and certainly the whole GP training space is very much looking at international medical graduates and the overseas trained doctors you're talking about mm-hmm. and how we can better support them mm. because at the moment these 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 doctors basically come from you know overseas they're plonked into a rural clinic you know somewhere in an area of need in Australia where where Australia trained doctors don't necessarily go or want to go, they've settled in a metropolitan place usually. And these people do struggle with with the stuff that you're talking about. They don't get the formal training that our registrars get. You know, we spend eight-hour days every month kind of just talking about topics and and supporting our registrars. Mm. The overseas trained doctors get nothing. They get nothing about that cultural training they don't get the kind of you know there's a lot of things in Australian culture you know I make jokes about the footy with my patients my patients know I'm a Carlton supporter which is very sad for me (laughs) but you know there's a lot of kind of you know day-to-day things that you just kind of get from being an Australian
1: yeah yeah
2: and so yeah there's work being done in that space more needs to be done and they need more support but it's yeah, I know exactly what you're saying, and I think it's tricky for both the patients and the doctors in that situation. Yeah, yeah so hopefully we can make that better for both parties.
0: Yeah, wow, okay. Okay, now we, we need to uh, confront the elephant in the room, and, and that is Google. <laughs> I, I have confessed when I've visited a GP that I did consult Dr. Google uh-huh. be, be, before I, I arrived, and, and it has sometimes given me some what I thought was very useful information about <laughs> what possibly could be could be wrong. With me, what what are the uh, the strengths and and the weaknesses of, of this approach?
2: Well, thank you for your honesty for having <laughs> having done Doctor Google. Look, I think far and away, what I find, Kent, is that Doctor Google generates quite a bit of anxiety mm. in patients. Yeah. So I think we live in an age where we've got phones, we've got you know, iPads or whatever else, and we've got constant access to information. Hmm. So people are usually looking up recipes or they want to buy a dress and they can do it, you know, whilst they're waiting for the tram to come. And the problem is when it's applied to health, I just don't think it's good because I get people coming in going, well, Google has said it's a brain tumor or, you know, Mm -hmm. Google has said that that it's breast cancer, that the lump is breast cancer. And, you know, over time, you know, I've got a lot of regular patients now. I've trained them to know that we don't ideally do that mm-hmm. and that, you know, Google cannot examine them, yes. hold their hand, reassure them, tell them why it's not breast cancer or, or mm. put a plan in place in case it is. So we have a kind of agreement, my patients and I, that we don't necessarily Google and if they do they tell me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But can it kind of puts you on the back foot sometimes and the patient goes, Oh, and Google's told me it's this Mm. You know, it puts a diagnosis to the forefront of my mind that yep. I wouldn't have actually thought about. So it kind of can murky the water sometimes.
0: <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that, that is that. interesting. I mean, I guess you know, we're all learning when it comes to information on the internet, what is a reliable source of information and what is an unreliable mm-hmm. source. You know, I mean, you you can, you can get your news from, you know, fairly mainstream credible sources, or you can get it from some, you know, wacky out there, you know, conspiracy you theories, you know, sort of thing. But And is it not the same with medical information? I mean, are there, relatively credible sources of medical information on the internet? I'm I'm thinking of like WebMD or or something like that
2: Look, I refer some of my patients to things like the Better Health Victoria website, which is really good Mm because that's kind of health and and the Victorian government run that, so it's it's really well updated and relevant information, so for people with, you know, pains and things who are really worried Mm. they will often have a look on that WebMD is not bad, you know, that tends to be more credible than the other things that you can find, but problem is Kent when you write headache or Mm. whatever you write into there I don't think the patient especially like when I'm a patient and I've got symptoms I can't distance myself from my own symptoms I kind of get lost in it and and overplay everything that I'm reading I'm like yes my pain is that bad and yes it is at night when it's really not Mm -hmm. and so I think it's just safest to go and chat to your GP and and have a have a proper history examination and, and get the reassurance that you need.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess there is something that is incredibly human in all of us that, any time we're looking down a list of symptoms for just about anything, yes. we'll start mentally checking off. Oh yes, I do it that's myself. Me. That's, me. My that's me. Childish, that's me. Because, oh my like, goodness, I see you know? TV.
2: Yeah. It's like it's not TV. It's a cold prayer. But you'd start to see things that just <laughs> you lose perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Now a- another thing you mentioned in your article, Priya, is that. You know, although you have this informal style, you, you encourage patients to, you know, address you by a first name, there are certain issues that when they ask, you know, what's your opinion about this? What's your opinion about that? You know, you, you've earned your trust with them and then they're maybe bringing up, you know, relationship issues or, and this sort of thing. And you, you sounded like you were a bit resistant to sort of getting into that. I mean, how, how broad is general practice and, and where's the limit?
2: Well, I guess, you know, there's some things, Kent, that I'm really happy to share my opinion on, which is, you know, parents will often ask me, what do you think about the meningococcal B vaccine? Mm-hmm. Great. All for it. My child is vaccinated. Happy to, to give that opinion when it's very clear. But, you know, what I can't give my opinion on is is when someone comes and says, you know, I'm in an abusive relationship. The violence is escalating. Do you think I should leave? hmm or when people say, you know, I know that she's having an affair. Do you think that I should leave Priya? Or, or do you think she's ha- he's having an affair? Mm. Those are questions that, you know, we're certainly trained as doctors not to ask them, uh, yeah. to answer them, sorry. Sure. And particularly with family violence issues, we, we don't because you just end up further alienating the, the patient. Mm, mm. They've already usually got. 20 people in their life in their family saying you need to leave him you need to leave him he keeps hitting you Mm. and when the gp says it as well you just further distance the patient so there are lots of things i'm happy to give my opinion on do you need antibiotics pneumonia yes would you take them, Priya? Absolutely, I'm happy to do that. But there are some things that we just can't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there's got to be a limit, and and no doubt you you cultivate you know good relationships with you know specialist services in, in your area so that you, you can you can refer people to to them. Yeah, it's a it sounds like a a, a challenge being a GP. I I gotta say <laughs> but, it is, yeah. but it's
2: so rewarding. It is a very tricky job. I have to say. Mm. Quite, quite emotionally demanding. You get very attached to these patients of yours.
1: Mm. But
2: you get such good long-term relationships. You see people over the course of years. You share the highs and the lows. Like I see the, the, the couples trying to get pregnant and they eventually do. Mm. I see people who lose their parents or their children, you know, and you, you kind of grieve with them.
0: Mm.
2: It's, it's a really... You're kind of part of these people's lives, mm. and it's it's a real honor. It's a privilege.
0: Yeah, just a journey along with them, yeah. Okay, so j- just as, as we finish, Priya, I was just hoping you might be able to give us some sort of, you know, Priya's hot tips to, to better health or, or, you know, or perhaps, you know, some of the, uh, you know, it, uh, sort of rookie errors that a lot of us make when it, when it comes to our health that you, you know, this, this is your platform to to tell the world, hey, oh, wow. here's, here's, here's something to look out for. Here, here's what you can do. Free free, plug, go.
2: (laughs) Free free health tip. So let me give you my top three. Yep. Number one is getting five serves of veggies a day in. So Mm -hmm. the Australian Health Report came out recently and said the majority of us, I think the figure was as high as like 90%, don't get five serves of veggies a day.
1: Mm.
2: Now, if you get enough veggies in, and a a serve is a cup of raw veggies Mm -hmm. or half a cup of cooked if you get enough veggies in, you reduce your risk of heart attacks, strokes, obesity, type two diabetes, fatty liver, bowel cancer. You know, mm. it's just crazy how much you know abundant health benefits you can you can get from just eating enough veggies. So that's yep. number one. Yep. Number two would be exercise. So mm-hmm. anyone listening, if you've made those excuses today that you're too tired or you can't sit it in or it's too cold. I'm going to challenge that and say all you need is 30 minutes most days. Mm -hmm. And if you can get in 30 minutes most days, again, you're reducing your risk of chronic disease, of cancers like bowel cancer and breast again, Mm. and you're preventing depression. And even if you have depression or anxiety, evidence tells us that exercise is a form of treatment for both. Mm. So exercise is absolutely key. And number three would be mental health. And I think we ignore it. And I think you need to just ask yourself the question sometimes, am I Okay. Don't wait for someone else to ask you. And if you're not, I think you need to have a low threshold to go and speak to your GP. And Mm. it's not that we're going to shove drugs at you or try and send you off to a psychiatrist or even a psychologist. But Mm. just Mm. to have someone to talk to can just put a halt on things.
0: Yeah. So those would be my top tips. Wow, no, and they they're good ones and, and very timely ones and ones that I think just about everyone could could take on board and, and make improvements on. So yeah. Thankfully, thank, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, doctor Priya Alexander, the the wholesome doctor is the name of her blog. Check check it out. Google it. <laughs> You're allowed, yeah, I promise. No, you are allowed. <laughs> yeah, thanks so <laughs> thanks much you for said. your Yeah, thanks for your time, Priya.
2: Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media.
0: This is an Adventist Media podcast.